tie to the book of Jude, the little one-chapter book just before uh, the book of Revelation. It's one of uh, three one-chapter books in the New Testament all together right before Revelation. I preached through this book one time when I was a pastor, and I did a miserable job. It really was bad. I just didn't do it. But as things unfold in the world, this book gets more timely. And um, I believe, anyway. And I took this on as a study with the group that I lead in Carthage every other Sunday night. That's where I will be next Sunday night with that group. And we've, I think we're four sessions into it, and we still have a ways to go. So we're only going to get through a couple of verses here tonight. I hope you'll see how important it is. The writer of the book of Jude introduces himself right off the bat in verse 1. It says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So he's the brother of James. We know that. And right off the bat, we understand that. Jude identifies himself that way. And the writer of the book of James was very likely the half-brother of Jesus and very likely Jude's brother. And they were both half-brothers of Jesus. Uh, James, the brother of John, uh, both of whom were apostles of Jesus, was martyred in A.D. 44. The book of James was written circa A.D. 45 to 50. So we know it wasn't James the Apostle who wrote that, thus making the writer James very likely the half-brother of Jesus. Um, Let's just pause for a prayer before we go on. I didn't have that built into this note, and I just realized that, and I don't like treading on without asking the Lord's uh, protection. Father, we thank you so much for being together here tonight and just having the, the good fellowship and the good time we've already enjoyed singing praying and just, in, and just in fellowship. I ask, Lord, that you'll just guide this study tonight and that all of us who are gathered here will gain something from it. And we'll just ask for your guidance and do you get the glory for anything good that happens. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Don't lose your place here, but go to the book of Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. We're not going to do the parables. That's not why we're there. We're going to look at a, something that happened that's going to answer a question, a great trivia question, a great biblical trivia question. How many sisters did Jesus have? Anybody know? Okay, you're going to find out. When Jesus went to Nazareth, you remember the town in which he was raised. Luke 4 gives us more details of the visit. The local people there, as all local people do, when someone from their area becomes well-known, doubted that such a man could have come from their town. And they really uh, were up, up about that, upset about it. You'll remember in Luke, we're told that, that Jesus had to get his way through the crowd to get out of there because they're going to push him off the edge of the hill. In, chapter, in verse 54 of uh, chapter 13, we read the following. And when he was come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren James and Joses and Simon and Judas? And that's where you have James and Jude listed together. In verse 56, 
and his sisters, are they not all with us? So the answer to the trivia question is more than one. How many sisters did he have? More than one. Same answer that the number of wise men were in the Christmas story. How many? More than one. Because they're plural wise men. There's not three of them. Well, there could have been three of them. There could have been 30 of them. We don't know. In this case, we know that Jesus had at least two sisters because it's pluralized here. Half-sisters, of course. Got all that? Good. There'll be a test next Sunday. Let's go back to Jude. (laughs) So we know that Jude, the brother of James and the half-brother of Jesus, is the writer of this letter. He then identifies to whom he is writing in the rest of that first verse. Let's read the whole verse. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Now, um, we know that the book uh, is, uh, Jude is uh, short, but it gives a very special greeting. And he believe, I believe what he writes right after this shows a sense of urgency to get on with his message. It is believed that Jews' readers were mostly Jews, but they are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think it's appropriate for us to call them Christians. The way Jude describes him in the second part of verse B, of verse 1, part B, describes perfectly anyone who has come to Jesus and trusted him for their eternal salvation. We are being sanctified, and we'll complete that process when we meet Jesus. We're being justified because of what Jesus did. And because we have trusted him, he preserves us or keeps us for himself when he returns. So we are called to be his forever. To them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. If you're saved tonight, think about that. We were singing that last song. I've never heard it before. But as we were singing it, I was sort of just mouthing the words, trying to go along and drinking in the words. It reminds me of a way that I talk to Jesus a lot when I'm talking to him about his crucifixion. I just say, how did you do it? How did you go through it? Because he's pure man as well as pure God. And the man side of him had to take the suffering. I couldn't do that. Couldn't do it in a billion years. How in the world did he do that? But he did. And because he did, we can be saved. Jude then gives that short but special greeting. And in verse 2, he says, Mercy unto you, and peace and love be multiplied. He has a heart for the people that he's writing to, and he's letting them know that also. The book is only 25 verses long. It doesn't take long to read the entire thing. I'm not going to do that tonight. I did when I was in Carthage, but that was a full hour that we had to do that. I won't do that. But uh, at the end of the book, there is a benediction, and it is in the last two verses of the book. And I think that's really a wonderful benediction. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Think about that. Jesus died for our sins, provides salvation for us, 
and then preserves us, faultless before him in the presence of his glory. I'm not faultless. I'm not faultless from the day that I got saved. I'm not faultless today. I've thought some things I had asked God for forgiveness for already today. So I'm not faultless, but Jesus preserves me. And when I stand before him, I'll be okay because he made me okay. And he made it possible for me to be okay. That is an unbelievable thought. And yet this book is loaded with short tidbits of information while focusing really on one theme. Do not be fooled by false teachers. Do not be fooled by false teachers. We touched on it this morning in that message. And the false teachers of Jude's day were the Gnostics. Jude's purpose in writing this letter was to challenge and encourage his readers to stand firm in their Christian faith, defending it against all false teaching. This morning, the challenge was, don't remain silent. Talk to people who are unsaved. Let them have a chance to know Jesus. Tonight, what we're going to be talking about is standing firm in our faith. And there are times that we have to do that. We have to absolutely stand firm in our faith because the world is going to push against us a lot. And false teaching in the church is a big problem because you can talk to people from certain churches that are learning one thing and you think, where are they hearing this stuff? And they're hearing it in church. And you've got to have enough courage to say, you know, that's not right. That is not what the Bible says. They have to have a chance to understand what the truth is as well. And the next two verses introduce that very clearly, and they make the letter as contemporary today as if it was written last week. Verses 3 and 4. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For, or because... There are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. When I write a letter or send out an email or anything else at the bottom of it, I usually put Jude 3 and 4, Jude 3, 4, and that's those two verses because I think that is so important if I'm writing a fellow believer especially that we are reminded of that need to be prepared to defend our faith. In Jude's day, the false teachers affecting the church were the Gnostics. Today we have a whole variety of them, different ones. Paul dealt with the Gnostics also. Basically, the Gnostics claimed that anything material in this world was evil, but everything that was spiritual was good at least on God's side of things. So they therefore at least claimed that they would develop their spiritual lives, but they would give no attention to their physical lives. In other words, it was okay to sin. It's all right, because you sinning proves how loving God is. It's okay. As long as your spirit life is all right, live it up. The result was predictable. People were guilty of all sorts of sin in the physical realm. In other words, they lived lives unbounded by any set of rules or restraints. Let your imagination fly. Let it fly. You know, when I was not saved yet, 
Man, my vocabulary was really bad. It really was. Um, I could sit in a radio studio, turn on the microphone, and just be sweet water, talking on the air, turn it off, turn around, and just cuss a blue streak. It was just as simple as anything for me to do that. When I got saved, I had to start changing that. And, you know, I'd like to say, I never had a bad word come out of my mouth since the day I met Jesus as my Savior. The problem would be a lightning strike would come through the ceiling and knock me down. Don't you remember? Yes. I slip back into the old ways every once in a great while and have a word slip. Or think it. I might as well say it if I think it. So uh, that's not right. If If you're living for Jesus, you can't go around talking that way. You can't go around acting like the world because it just doesn't set us apart from them. It got to a point where so-called pastors or preachers are telling church folks today that abortion is okay. That's all right. That's okay. That same-sex relations are not going to interfere with your spiritual lives. Nothing can be further from the truth. We can list all sorts of things being overlooked in churches and ministries all over the world. Um, I'm going down a little rabbit trail here, but I, I need to do it. In Keokuk, we have two United Methodist churches, Trinity and Emmanuel, and they are both going to have and will have now empty pulpits. They will not have pastors in their churches. The church in Warsaw, I know, the Methodist church in Warsaw, because of a funeral I did last week, is without a pastor now. And when I first heard this, I understood that it was a split over the stand on homosexuality and uh, abortion and things like that, and I thought, great, our Keokuk churches are standing up for the good things. Then I find out, no, 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 no. The ones that are going with the United Methodists and staying in the belief that same-sex marriage is all right and abortion is a good thing are the churches that don't have pastors. Well, the pastor of the church, two churches in Keokuk, is retiring. And he had a funeral a few weeks ago and I was driving him in the coach, and he said to me, are you available for pulpit supply? I thought, huh, what, what, what? I said, yeah, I am. He said, I'm going to tell the people at our church because I'm retiring and they're not going to have a pastor. I thought, all right, great. At that time, I thought that they were becoming fundamental. Then I found out, no, I'm going to preach in one of those churches. On the 27th of August, I am excited about it. I'll never be back. <laughs> but, but I've got one day, and, and I'm looking forward to it. That is exciting to me. When we study Jude, and when what Jude called on people to do, and then look at the modern-day church, we can understand exactly why the immoral people are having such success in misleading whole bodies of believers in the wrong direction. Look at verse 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, I wanted to write a happy letter. I wanted to write about what we are sharing in Jesus. It was needful for me, I had to do it, to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Kind of like what we talked about this morning. 
we are the ones who are the ones that can present the words of reconciliation to somebody. We're the only ones that can do it. And we are the only ones that can share the faith. The angels can't do it. Jesus is in heaven. He's not going to do it. He's relying on his body on this earth to do it. That's us. And that's what Jude is calling us to do here. He set out to write a letter full of happy things, sharing about the faith that he and his readers share, but the situation they were facing caused them to open this letter by calling for the people to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Please note, first of all, this faith is entrusted to the people who have it. Nobody else has it. If you're saved, you have it. If you're not saved, you don't have it. And anybody who stands in a pulpit, if they're not saved, they don't have it. We who, thank God, have accepted Christ as our Savior, we have it. It's up to us to defend it, and it's up to us to share it and spread it. They, we, are the protectors and defenders of the truth of the Bible. And the message of salvation to all of mankind. So not just to apostles or today, not just to preachers, but all of us have a responsibility to earnestly contend for the faith. Concentrate on those words for a moment. Earnestly contend for the faith. You may have a different translation with different wording. I'll get into that here a little bit anyway this way. What exactly is meant by the instruction to earnestly contend for the faith? Earnestly contend for could be translated stand solidly for or agonizingly struggle for. It's not an easy thing to do. Taking a stand and not moving is one of the hardest things in the world to do. The world is going in one direction. The easiest thing to do is to go with it. The second easiest thing to do is to walk against it. The hardest thing to do is stand still and don't let it move you. I covered the flood down in St. Francisville when they had that ice jam several years ago and water came up through the town and it was streaking through town. And I was sitting up on the approach to the bridge and I saw a man come out of his house and try to cross his yard and I thought he was going to get swept away. And he made it, thank God, he got over there. When he came back, he was able to walk much better against the, against the flow of the water than he was trying to keep his balance going with it. So you try to go with it, you're going to get swept off your feet anyway. Agonizingly struggle for this is not This is not some game. It's not an easy thing that we have to do. We're up against a whole lot of things. But it's a spiritual struggle. A spiritual struggle that translates into the physical world when we speak up. And we say what the truth is. If we apply this instruction as coming to us today where we are, what things might you think about the need for us to carry out that instruction. When you're with somebody and they offhand say, you know, I really have seen the light. And I, I think that same-sex couples are just fine. No problem. Oh, wait a minute. You don't want to be hurtful to people. I understand that. But you can't let the, a falsehood go by. You've got to say something. You've got to speak up and say something. Say, no, 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 the Bible doesn't say that. And I share a lot of fear for people in that position. I've got friends who are in that lifestyle. And they're good people. 
I mean, what we would call good people. I trust my life in their hands. I really would. But they're marching toward hell. And if you don't tell them, how are they going to know? And then when the world comes against you, to stand and never change. Don't back down. Keep your exact belief and keep it solid. Then as Jude points out why this message is so important, it really becomes contemporary in verse 4. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's pretty clear. False teachers have wormed their way into the church. It's happened today. There are false teachers in pulpits all over the place today. They've wormed their way in. Remember, the Gnostics believed only the spiritual life of someone meant anything, so the flesh had free reign because it was evil anyway. The false teachers of Jude's time were saying that the more people sinned, the more glory they brought to God because they showed God showed his grace toward mankind. Now, I doubt any preacher today would say that, but in pushing such things as same-sex marriage or abortion, for instance, things that are very uppermost on the list for opposing God these days, they are literally trying to get people they, at, uh, they are ministering to to at least think they are Christians, but go ahead and live according to the flesh. You're okay. God loves you. It's all right that you're involved in sinful activities. It's just not true. For there are certain men crept in unawares. That's important. Who invited them in? I didn't. They're in there, unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. When so-called Christian people engage in those sinful activities, are they not denying the Lord Jesus Christ? Are they not denying him? If you love him, follow him. If you love him, serve him. If you love him, obey him. If they follow that false teaching, are they not going against what God's word says? Yes. But some of them have been told, no, no, God's word doesn't say that. And they need to know that. They need to be told that. A pastor who would encourage or at least okay sinful behavior such as abortion fits the description of ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. So I looked through other Bibles. I had a New King James Version. It uses lewdness, L-E-W-D-N-E-N-S-S. Uh, in the NIV, it is a license for immorality. A license for immorality. In the American Standard, in the New American Standard, it is licentiousness, which is very close to lasciviousness. I mean, you can say lasciviousness to a room full of teenagers today, and they might not really understand what you're talking about. <laughs> you might want to clarify that a little bit for them. Lewdness, license for immorality. Lewdness and a license for immorality, that really does give us a good translation. The Greek word translated lasciviousness, etc., is defined in the Strong's Dictionary as filthy. Filthy. Lasciviousness, 
filthy. Can there be a clearer definition of false teaching or a better example of what is now and has been for some time occurring in the organization of the church other than pastors defending abortion and okaying same-sex marriage, even performing it? Those two verses still go together very well. So let me take them together one last time and remember that in them, Jude is describing what the faithful believers are to do and then identifies the people who are causing the problems with which they must deal. Here's our marching orders, church. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, I just wanted to write a nice little letter and share with you the wonderful joy that we all share because of Jesus' love for us. But the Holy Spirit obviously guided him in a different direction. It was needful. I had to. I was moved upon for me to write unto you and exhort you, challenge you, get to work, that ye should earnestly contend for the faith, struggle agonizingly for the faith, which was once delivered unto the saints. You're a saint. The faith has been delivered to you. Why? For there are certain men crept in unawares, and probably in Jude's day, there might have been pockets of believers who didn't realize this, and they're being notified. Today, I don't know how you can miss it. If you watch any of the stuff that's on television so often uh, from false believers uh, there, and if you read about it in papers and other things, we know that. But for certain, there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. They're ungodly. That's important. Ungodly men. Turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, lewdness. Uh, what was the other word that I had there? Lewdness and uh, license. a license for immorality. They're turning the grace of God into a license for immorality. And denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. If you take his grace and you turn it into something that you can sin with, you are absolutely blaspheming him and just putting him down. So the question is this. Now that you know the problem and the marching orders the Lord is giving us through Jude's letter, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? All of us have contact with people who are probably being misled somewhere, and there'll be an opening someday. And when that opening comes, speak up. Don't let it slide by. Do you plan to earnestly contend for the faith that is entrusted to us or just quietly sit by and let them slide because they're sliding right into the fires of hell? I would appreciate your prayers, especially on the 27th of August, because it's tough to go into a church that you know believes wrong and to go ahead and preach the truth to them with passion. And you need to preach with passion, as you well know. I praise God for your church. I praise God for your pastor. I praise God for your stand. Just don't hide it under a bushel. Make sure you let the world know that you have Jesus in your heart and he loves everybody that you come in contact with. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity just to share a little bit of your word tonight and to uh, just encourage one another 
that we need to be strong and take those stands and not shrink back from them. I would pray, Lord, that in the next week, all of us will have an opportunity somewhere to speak up for you and that none of us will let that slide by. And if there's anybody here tonight that needs to do work with you, help them to do that work. If they need to talk to somebody, my time is their time. I'm sure Pastor Aaron is the same way. And we just pray, Father, that you will go with us as we go our separate ways later. And please let us be representatives of you in this world the way we should be. And I ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Brother.